This morning, I'd like to return to Psalm 41 and verse 13, and I'd like to consider this question. How should we respond to the Lord as we have seen Him in Psalms 1 through 41? Over the past year, we have learned many things about God. By sharing in the experiences of the psalmists with their prayers and their songs. And it's worth taking a look back to remind ourselves of some of them. James Montgomery Boyce has written a bit about this. And I'd like to share with you some of his thoughts. And so I'm not necessarily quoting him, but I'm referring to what he's written. In Psalm 1, we learn that God blesses those who root themselves in His Word and watches over them. Psalm 2 assures us of the victory of the divine Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalms 3 and 4, we learn that God is with us in the morning and the evening so that we can lie down in peace and rise up with rejoicing. Psalms 6 and 32 remind us that God is willing and able to forgive sin. Psalm 7 teaches God's justice. Psalm 8, His majesty. Psalms 9, 20, 34, 35, and 40 speak of His deliverance from the enemy and the preservation of the king and of the nation. Psalm 14 speaks of the folly of spiritual rebels. Psalm 16 contains a prophecy of the resurrection. Psalm 22 talks about the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Psalm 23, the, uh, the great shepherd who guides and protects his sheep. And Psalm 24, the chief shepherd who will return to judge and reward his sheep. In Psalm 27, God is our light and our salvation. In Psalm 28, God answers prayer. In Psalm 29... It deals with God's glory. Well, Psalm 30 reminds us that God is our joy. And Psalm 31, that God is our refuge. In Psalm 37, we learn that we can rest secure in God in all circumstances. And in Psalms 38 and 41, we see that God is our help even in sickness and indeed in every trial. I suppose, if I was of mind, we could go back and re-preach all the messages that I've done on those 41 Psalms. I think by my if my memory serves, that I've preached 48 messages on those first 41 psalms in the last year. But this morning, instead of doing that, I would like to draw your attention to four truths about the Lord from Psalms Book 1. And you'll see that when we understand these truths, and when we embrace them as truth, The only appropriate, reasonable, even sane response is to shout and sing praises to the Lord, just as we find in Psalm 41 and verse 13, which says, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. The four truths are these, and you don't need to copy them down right now, because we're going to go back through each one of them individually, but I'm just going to show them to you. Okay. The first truth is this, that the Lord blesses those who trust in Him and delight in His Word. The second, that the Lord is willing and able to forgive sin. The third, that the Lord is the author of salvation. And lastly, the Lord is our refuge and help at all times. Let me just say this before we go on. 
that's not uh, obviously not all of the things that Psalms 1 through 41 say about the Lord. I had to pick <laughs> the themes that I felt like were the most significant and primary themes in book one. There's many, many more that I had listed out and many more details that we could talk about. We have talked about. But I'd like to focus on these four this morning. And I think there's benefit and profit for us in that. So let's pray and ask the Lord to direct our minds and our hearts to Him through His Word. And then we will begin. Heavenly Father, again, we are thankful to You for all of the good that You do, especially for the good that You have given us in Your Word. You have told us about Yourself. What better thing could we have? What what, what, what thing could possibly be more good to us than to know you? Uh, to, to learn uh, about you from your word and to be introduced to you so that we can know you personally, individually, and even corporately as a church, that we can come before you. Lord, we are blessed. You have done a great thing in giving us this truth. And I pray this morning that you would help us as we study it And as we remind ourselves of things we've already talked about, but we go back and we review, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to embrace these things, not just as uh, intellectual concepts, not just in our minds to say, oh yeah, those things are true, but Lord, help us to, to cling to them in our hearts so that these would be foundational truths that we hold on to when everything else is stripped away and everything else seems to come crashing down, that these are the truths that we hold on to who you are and what you've done, that we might stand in faith, that we might ultimately stand before you, having trusted in you and seen your glory brought about in our lives. Lord, thank you for what you're going to do through your word this morning. I pray that you'd speak through your word, and through me as your servant, that your spirit would accomplish your work in our own hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I'd like to begin with the first truth. The first truth, the Lord blesses those who trust in him and delight in him. This principle is brought out for us right away at the beginning of of book one in Psalm 1. There are several other psalms that touch on this theme. Psalms 15 and 16, Psalm 19, Psalm 23 and 24, Psalms 36 and 37. All of those psalms touch on this theme and this topic. But but let's consider what some of these psalms say to us. From the very first verses, and, and, and let me just say this too. I'm putting a bunch of verses up on the screen today. You don't have to necessarily turn there. We're going to be moving through them fairly quickly, so I don't want to delay by having to turn to them. So I put them up there, but if you want to just jot down references, you can look back at them uh, at your leisure. But uh, the, the, we can begin right here with, with, with the very first psalm, where David says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The Word of God, the Bible, is clearly of great importance. And the man or the woman who meditates in it will be blessed with strength, with lasting substance. That's what Psalm 1 teaches us. What an important truth 
that the Lord blesses those who trust in Him and delight in His Word. You want to be blessed by God? Then meditate and delight in the Word of God. That's not all. In Psalm 16, we read this. O Lord, You are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When I preached on Psalm 16, I said that we need to get in the habit of telling ourselves, rather of, I should say, we need to get in the habit of speaking to ourselves the truth, that's where we say to ourselves, I have God, and He's enough. I have Him. He is my inheritance. That's enough. <laughs> See, these are the, the blessings that are promised, the blessings of life. Psalm 16 is about the resurrection David talks about here. The blessings of life and joy and pleasure are promised not to those who have wealth and influence and power, but to those who trust in the Lord. So we want to enjoy pleasure. We want to enjoy life. We want to enjoy satisfaction and all of these things. How are we going to find them? Only by trusting in the Lord. And we turn to Psalm 36 and we read this. Oh, I guess I I didn't skipped over a verse there, didn't I? David says here, life, joy, pleasure, God's right hand. Psalm 36, he tells us this, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. I just can't get over those images that he uses there. They are abundantly satisfied. Not a little bit satisfied. Abundantly, overflowing, completely and totally satisfied with the fullness, not the the scraps from the table, the fullness of your house. Everything that you have that's good you give to your people. To the children of men who put their trust under the shadow of your wings. See, see, here's what it is. We trust in the Lord and He pours out blessings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. You give them drink from the river of your pleasures. We don't usually, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I don't drink from the river very often. Okay? But when you picture that, It's a continuous flow of fresh supply. Abundant. Always fresh. Always moving. Always new. Always available. That's what that pictures. The river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. God promises blessings. He promises abundant happiness 
I think that's important too for us to, to get hold of. Sometimes we have the mindset that that happiness is something that is not really for this life, for the Christian, but that happiness is something that awaits us. We have joy now, we rejoice in the Lord, but we suffer and so we're not happy. But the scripture says so much about happiness. That he gives us happiness, he, he pours out blessings of happiness to us, abundant happiness, complete satisfaction. To whom? To those who trust in him. Clearly, it is right. Clearly, it's right for God's people to respond with Psalm 41:13: Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Because the Lord blesses those who trust in him and delight in his word. Now we move on to the second truth about God that we have observed in Psalms 1 through 41. The Lord is willing and able to forgive sin. And again, this principle is found in many different Psalms. It dominates Psalms 6, 25, and 32. Out of David's own mouth in Psalm 6, we read this. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. You see, as sinners, as sinners, we can only seek mercy from the Lord. That's it. See, as sinners, the only thing we can possibly hope for from the Lord is mercy. That's what we pray for as sinners. You see, we, we talk about this, we, we talk about praying and, and, and coming to the Lord, but, but from the perspective of being sinful, there's only one thing we can ask. You see, as sinners, we don't have a right to ask for God to pour out blessings. We don't have a right to ask for abundance and goodness and happiness and satisfaction. We only can ask for one thing, and that's mercy. The mercy to forgive our sins. The mercy to, to cleanse us. Okay. The mercy to save us. This is what sinners pray for. When we are aware of our sin, we pray for mercy. That's why David writes then in Psalm 25, and he says, Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions, according to your mercy, Remember me for your goodness sake. Whoops. Must have put more on my notes here. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Look on all my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. And so we see the example of David. That as sinners, we pray for God's mercy. But here's the thing. When we pray for God's mercy, do we have the assurance that God will hear those prayers and respond to them? When you ask God for forgiveness, do you know that He will hear you? Do you know that every time you ask Him for forgiveness, He's listening to you? And he's responding by saying, I love you, and I forgive you. 
Do you know that to be true? You need to. You need to understand that because David says this in Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What what sin was David confessing? What sin was he crying out for mercy for? David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. David was a liar and a deceiver. Those are the things that he had done. And he cries out to the Lord. And he says, I acknowledged you. I didn't hide my iniquity. I said, I confessed my transgressions and you forgave me. That's the assurance that we have. Every time you confess your sin to the Lord, He forgives. He shows mercy. Every time, without fail. He is faithful to forgive when we confess our sin and seek mercy. This, again, is a reality, a truth that we need to hold on to. Because there are days when you will doubt this. There are days when when your heart and your mind will say, you don't deserve it. There are times when your heart will condemn you and will say, you do not deserve to be treated as a child of God. You don't deserve to be forgiven. You don't deserve to be embraced. You don't deserve to be loved. I know that. I know that because my heart does the same thing. So I know there are days that that's how you feel. But we come back to the truth. This is is why it matters so much. This is why it matters so much that we know and believe the Word of God because the truth is all we have on those days. How can we survive? How can we stand? How can we continue when our heart is condemning us and saying you're unworthy? How can we do that? We come back to the truth of Scripture. We take hold of it and we say, no, because I confessed my sin. I acknowledged my iniquity and God forgave me. We do that with confidence. And we cling to the truth that the Lord is willing and able to forgive sins. And so here's the thing. Because that is true, it's right for you and for me to say what David says in Psalm 41.13. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. That is appropriate for us to say. The third truth is closely related to the second one. And it's this, that the Lord is the author of salvation. Psalms 13, 17, 18, 27, and 30 all focus on this theme. But really, Psalm 22 is is indispensable here. Psalm 22 is where this 
is really brought to the forefront because in Psalm 22 we have a picture of the crucifixion of the Messiah. The Lord Jesus, our sin bearer. Psalm 22 begins with the cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words which were spoken by Christ on the cross. It describes another very, very uh, rather, it describes another aspect of his public, very public death. When it says this, "I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him save him. He let him deliver him, since he delights in him.'" Jesus Christ was humiliated. He was mocked. He was scorned by the very ones that He came to save. But Psalm 22 continues. It says things like, like this, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. And the picture of the cross in Psalm 22 is not yet complete because in the very next verses he continues by saying this, for the dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see, it's not just that God offers to forgive your sins. It's true. If you confess your sin, He is faithful. He is just, and He will forgive your sins, and He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is a promise that you can hold on to and you need to, because you're going to need it. But that's not all that we have to say about this. There's something more significant here. He actually took your place. He actually died your death. And He did that so that your salvation could be possible. You see, Scripture is very clear on this point. Without the crucifixion of Christ, without His suffering and death, without Him shedding His blood, you and I could not be forgiven. That was the only way that it was possible for us to be forgiven. God had to do it. You see, God, you say, well, is there anything God can't do? I mean, we always say there's nothing God can't do. Well, that's not true. There are some things God can't do. God can't justify a sinner apart from the work of Christ. He can't. That would make God unjust. Paul says that very clearly in Romans chapter 3. If you don't believe me, you can read it. Paul says that, that Christ had to die so that God would be righteous in forgiving sins. The only way that God could forgive sins and not become a sinner himself is that God sent His Son who took your place and mine and bore our sin in His body on the tree. That's it. If God didn't do that, then He couldn't offer you forgiveness without becoming a criminal Himself. 
so he did it. Psalm 22 tells us about that. That God is the author of our salvation. That he took the steps necessary to provide a way for us to be saved. If he hadn't done that, we would still be lost and condemned with no hope. And so it's appropriate for us to say with David in Psalm 41.13, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. The fourth truth is probably the most prominent one in this first book of the Psalms. It appears in more than half of the songs of this book. The Lord is our refuge and help at all times. Did you know that out of the 41 psalms in this first book of psalms, 25 of them are laments? And only only seven of them, I believe, are hymns of praise. 25 out of 41 are songs of lament. David grieving over his his sin, David grieving over the the enemies who are surrounding him and his sickness and the, the struggles that he faced and the difficulties of life. Crying out to God and feeling as if he's not hearing. 25 out of 41. This is the very prevalent thing that we find ourselves in need of a refuge. We find ourselves in need of divine help. I don't know about you, but I find myself in need of God's help all the time, continually. Well, here's the truth for us to cling to. The Lord is your refuge. He is your help at all times. You say, well, it doesn't always feel that way. Come back to the truth. Cling to the truth. When your heart and your mind tell you that all is lost, cling to the truth that the Lord is your refuge, that He is your help. Consider what He says in Psalm 12. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. And then God speaks, for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will... Oops, I didn't have that up there. I will set him in safety. I will set him in in the safety for which he yearns. Do you know the Lord is moved by the cries of his people? For the crying of the needy, for the sighing of the needy and the oppression of the poor, God says, I will arise. When he hears the cries of his people who are oppressed, who are suffering, he is moved. So what do you do when you're suffering? Cry out. Cry out to Him. He is moved by that. He will be your refuge and your help. Psalm 3. He says, You, O Lord, are a shield for me. My glory, the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and He heard me from His holy hill. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings is upon your people. Again, what is it that moves God 
to action? What is it that moves God to help His people, to save them? It's His prayers, right? It's the prayer of the righteous man. It's the prayer of those who trust in the Lord. It's their cries. That's what moves God to action. And so we need to cry out to Him. We need to pray. We need to appeal to Him regularly for help. That's what gets Him moving on our behalf. That's what gets Him to come to our aid. When we cry out to Him. Again, He is a Father. When He hears the voice of His child crying out, that's what moves Him. And of course, then we come to Psalm 37 and we are told in Psalm 37, do not fret. It only causes harm. Instead of that, we're reminded that the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in Him. Our God is faithful. Not only has He provided salvation from sin and death by the blood of Jesus, but He has committed Himself to being our refuge and our strength in every situation. So again, we should say, along with David in Psalm 41.13, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. But what exactly does it mean for us to say this? What are we really saying here if we repeat these words from Psalm 41? See, it's not enough for us to repeat words, words by themselves. We, the, you, know, the, the, you understand that this isn't how this works, right? There's not some sort of incantation that we can just repeat and magic things happen. There's an understanding that goes along with this. If we're going to say this, if we're going to respond to all of these things about God, and we're going to say, blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen, we've got to understand what we're saying. Do you ever wonder how it is that we can bless the Lord? I mean, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. Psalm 41, blessed is he who considers the poor. Right? Psalm 32, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. See, God blesses us. And what does it mean for God to bless us? It means he gives us something, right? He favors us. Right? He, he, Psalm 1, he blesses the man who delights in his word with what? Well, by establishing him like a tree planted by rivers of water. He blesses him by providing him with everything he needs to grow and be strong and to produce fruit and to be successful, not in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes. In Psalm 41, how does he bless the man who considers the poor? Well, he delivers him and he spares him and he helps him in his time of need. Psalm 32, how does he bless that? He blesses by forgiving sin, by not imparting our iniquity to us. See, God gives us things when he blesses us, but how do we bless God? What does it mean to say, blessed be the Lord God of Israel? What can I give to God that will bless Him? Well, that's an important question. What can we give to God that will add anything to Him? 
in class, the answer is? Well, you're ahead of me there a little bit. The right answer is nothing. What can we give to God that will add anything that he does not already possess? What can we give that will add to him? Nothing. There's nothing we have that we can give to him that will make God more blessed than he currently is. But see, here's the thing. This word is a different word. See, this is where I kind of trick you up here. I ask a tricky question. Here. This word's a different word. See, Psalm 41, verse 13, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. But in Psalm 41, verse 1, blessed is he who considers the poor. These are different words. Now, they're translated the same in our Bible, but they're not the same word. The word that's used in verse 1 means to be made straight, upright, or happy. It has the idea of a life of purpose. A life of satisfaction. When he says, blessed is he who considers the poor, that word blessed, and it's the same word that's used in Psalm 1, it has the idea of God making you stand and walk straight on a straight path. And so your life is lived in this upright way because God blesses you that way. That's, That's the blessing. And so it's a life of fulfillment. It's a life of satisfaction. Again, it's not material wealth. It's God ordering your steps. It's God determining the end of your life by the way you're going to walk. And so God leads you along. And that's the idea of blessing you. God blesses us by, by making us stand. And so that word blessed also is used to, 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 to refer to happiness because happiness is found in living a life that is satisfying. Living a life that has purpose, Right? And so we understand that that connection there, true happiness, is found in living the life God's way, finding purpose and satisfaction in Him. But in verse 13, the word bless is different. The word there has the idea of bowing or kneeling down. And so it suggests kneeling down in prayer or to offer praise. So what we're talking about here is giving thanks to the Lord. What Risa said, praising the Lord or saluting Him. It's not that we're enriching God, see? We don't offer God something that He needs. We're not filling in a hole. We're not giving God something He doesn't already have, right? When we say, blessed be the Lord, when we bless the Lord, we're not giving him something he doesn't already possess. We are acknowledging everything he has done for us. And we're offering him our admiration and our gratitude in return. And so it's interesting here, I think, in verse 13 of Psalm 41, that really gives us three aspects of praise. What does it mean to bless the Lord? How do we praise the Lord? Well, here's what we're going to see. And they'll shape who and how we worship. The first thing is this. We have what I call the object of praise. Who or what do we praise? Well, David makes it very clear. There's no misunderstanding here. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Who is that? Well, we have his name here for us. His name is recorded in this verse. It's Yahweh. Lord is how it's translated in nearly every English version. 
We know his name. Why do we know his name? Because he's told us his name. This is how he has revealed himself to us. Remember what he said to Moses. Moses says, what name do you go by? How do I identify you to the people of Israel? And he says, tell them I am that I am. Yahweh. I am the self-existent one, the one who has always been and who will always be. The one who doesn't depend on anyone or anything else for his own existence. He just is. He is Yahweh, the great I am. That's who we worship. But he's more than that. This is good because he's not just the great Yahweh, the great uh, transcendent God who rules over everything, you know, the God that's, that's so great and so far away from us we couldn't hope to ever come near him. David says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He is not just the all-powerful God in heaven. He is also the one who has chosen his people and has entered into a relationship with them. When David calls him the Lord God of Israel here, what he's speaking of is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, whose name would later be changed to Israel. And how did God become the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Do you remember from reading the book of Genesis? How did God become the God of Abraham? Did Abraham decide one day that, well, I'm going to choose to worship this God, and so he's going to be my God? Is that how it happened? We read it in the book of Genesis that God came and spoke to Abraham. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, get out of your country, leave your father's house, leave your family and all of your kindred, and go to a land that I'm going to send you to. God came and found Abraham. God called Abraham. God chose Abraham. God said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm choosing you. And then, of course, Abraham has a son, Ishmael, you remember? And, and, and Abraham says, oh, I wish that you know, Ishmael could stand before you. And God says, no, it's not Ishmael. Sarah is going to be the mother, not your slave wife. It's going to be the one I said, Sarah. And so Sarah gives birth to Isaac, and God says, I don't choose Ishmael, I choose Isaac. Did Isaac choose God? No, God chose him. And of course, Isaac's uh, about to become a father, and, and uh, Rebecca has those two babies in her womb. And God says, before either one of them is born, God says, the older will serve the younger. And I've chosen the younger. He is going to be my chosen vessel to bear the promise. And of course, Esau is born, and then Jacob is born. And Jacob, the deceiver, the heel grabber, the trickster, the man of the world, becomes Israel the prince with God. Why? Did Jacob choose God? Are you kidding me? Read the life of Jacob. He's a scoundrel. Jacob didn't choose God. God chose him. Over and over and over, what do we see? God chose. God chose. God chose. He's the God of Israel, not because Israel chose him, because he chose them. He chooses his people. He enters into relationship with them. He makes covenant with them. And you know something in the New Testament tells us? The New Testament tells us that he has chosen us who believe in Christ to be his sons and daughters. 
If you've been born again by faith in Jesus Christ, then you did not choose him, he chose you. That's what scripture says. Don't ask me how to explain that completely. I'm not sure I can, every last detail. But all I know is it's what it says. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world if you know Christ Jesus as your Savior. And so who, who do we praise? Who is the object of our praise? Well, it's the one who chose you. The one who chose you. The Lord God of Israel who chose you. He's the one you praise. Why? Because he chose you. Why did he choose you? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying anything about you. I don't know why he chose you. I think I know why he chose you. No, I'm not saying that. I don't know why he chose me. We can't answer that question. Why did he choose us? Well, I can tell you this. It wasn't because you or I have something great in us. It wasn't because he saw some glimmer of hope. Some little spark of the divine. Nonsense. What did he see when he looked at us? We already read it earlier. David said, Psalm 22, I'm a worm, not a man. David says, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? Who are, who are, who are we? What did God see when he looked at us? Sinners. Rebels. Corrupt. Dead in our sins. That's what he saw. But God chose. So you ought to praise him. You ought to sing. You ought to shout his praises. Why? Because he chose you. That's who he praised. The Lord, the God of Israel, the one who chose you. But what should those praises be like? How do we praise God? Well, that's the second question here. The second element that David touches on in this verse is the nature of our praise. No, he doesn't tell us here whether we should use drums or guitars or pianos or, you know, orchestra or whatever. He doesn't tell us whether we should sing high church or low church. He doesn't tell us any of that stuff. But he does answer this question in this way. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. The praises that we offer are covenant-keeping God ought to be consistent with His own glory and His own majesty. And if there's one thing we know about His glory and His majesty, it is they are eternal. How do we, how do we offer praise that is consistent with or that matches up to the majesty and glory of God. How can you offer praise that even comes close? God's majesty and His glory, they are eternal from everlasting to everlasting. By the way, those words everlasting there in the verse, they mean uh, time out of mind. It's a vanishing point. So from the vanishing point this way to the vanishing point that way. From time out of mind in the past to time out of mind in the future, from everlasting to everlasting. No beginning, no end. The praise of God goes on. That's what David says. But how do we offer praises like that? This is, this is really cool. I was thinking about this this week. Just, just meditate on this. The angels in heaven, they fly around the throne of God, and they sing, and they shout. And what do they shout? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah saw it, right? The seraphim flying around the throne and crying out back and forth. Ezekiel saw it. John saw it. 
that there was continuous praise being offered to the Lord around His throne. But when you and I sing praise to God, you know what we're doing? We are entering into the ongoing river of praise that flows from eternity past to eternity future. Our praise is to be eternal just like His glory. You ought to marvel at the Lord who never changes. You ought to marvel at the Lord whose word is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked on this earth. His word was just as true 3,000 years ago when David wrote Psalm 41. His word was just as true when he walked and he talked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The word of God never changes. His glory never diminishes. His holiness never fades. His purity never tarnishes. His power never grows weak. His sight never grows dim. His heart never grows cold. And His hands never grow tired. So we join in the song of praise. We may not begin the song, but we can join in. And with the blessed hope of eternal life in Christ, we can know that we will be singing that song forever. We are taking part when we sing praise to the Lord in the eternal worship of Almighty God. This song has begun and has been sung since before the world began and it will continue to be sung until heaven and earth pass away and are replaced with a new creation. And you have the choice today to enter into that song, to join with your voice those who are already singing. You can say amen and amen. That's your participation in praise. This is your part. What do we get to do? How do we get to enter into this? Well, he says here, amen and amen. I love that. This closing words of this book one of the Psalms. That word amen is taken, borrowed directly from the Hebrew. It means let it be true. It's no accident that that word has been adopted into the Christian faith, that we close our prayers with that. Why do we do that? Why is it when we close our prayers we say amen? We're affirming that we believe what we have said is true. That's what amen is. It's an affirmation. It's a way of us responding and saying, yes, I agree. Let it be true. We've spent an entire year studying Psalms 1-41 through and seeing all of the truths that I've set before you today and many more besides those ones. So what do you say in response to it? You say, amen and amen. Let it be true. Yes, Lord. That's what you say. You affirm the truth of the Scriptures. That the Lord is God. You say amen, and it's more than just a pious punctuation mark, as one writer put it. (laughs) I love that. It's affirming the truths as they have been stated. That God will bless you if you trust in Him and delight in His Word. Do you believe that? Then say amen. Then sing the praise of God if you believe it's true. Do you believe 
that God is ready and willing to forgive your sins and that He's provided the way of salvation? Then say amen and sing His praise. Do you believe that God is your refuge and your help in any and every trial? Then say amen and sing His praise even when you're in the middle of the trial and the trouble. Will you bow before Him in godly sorrow for your sin and cry out for mercy? Will you kneel before Him and salute Him as your Lord? Will you lift up your voice to say and to sing? Will you say it with me? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray.